Welcome to another episode of We Don't Die, where my goal is to give you evidence that although our bodies will disappear, we survive physical death. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the best-selling book called We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. Today on our show, I get to introduce you to Leslie Lupo, coming to us from Tucson, Arizona. Leslie is a licensed NLP therapist with more than 25 years of experience as an intuitive therapist. She has seen thousands of clients all over the world and has conducted numerous workshops in areas as diverse as relationships and energy work. For the last 20 years, she has worked in the metaphysical department of the Canyon Ranch Health Resort in Tucson, both as a psychic and for three years as the spiritual programs coordinator. In addition to counseling clients, Leslie teaches a relationship workshop called Manifest the Real Deal, Have a Best Friend, Best Lover for Life, and divides her time creating mosaics and jewelry, meditating by her pond, keeping bees, and growing organic veggies. She sounds like a fun lady, doesn't she? She's also the author of the upcoming book, Every Breath is Precious. Her website is www.lightthepath.com, or you can find out more about her at wedontdieradio.com and click on episode 110. Leslie Lupo, welcome to We Don't Die Radio. Hello. Hello. <laughs> very honored that you contacted me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Absolutely. Oh. Leslie, there's so much more about you that I could have said in the bio, but I wanted you to tell your story in your own words about how you got into this Oh, magnificent work you're doing. And um, yeah, what do you know about life after death? Is that a big question or what? It, it is. It all started um, in March of 88. I was working at a dude ranch and um, I was the vice president of operations. At that point, you bounce around a lot between different departments to help whoever's needed. And one of the cowboys was not feeling well. So I jumped into the wrangling department and helped out. So at the end of the day, we were unsaddling, waiting for the last two rides to come in and two horses had snuck out the, the gate and run down to the hay barn with their saddles on, which is dangerous for the horses. They can get hurt if they roll and it's it's a, a problem. So I ran down to the hay barn with two halters to grab the horses and come up. And I don't know if people know horses, but they're not like on television where they're just so sweet and like a puppy, right. especially a large herd. We had like over a hundred horses. Wow. But the thing about them is there's, there's never enough food for them, no matter how much you put them up they will eat to their fill, but they're still panicky. So everybody's jammed in eating at the end of the day. And I had to try to wiggle between horses to bring them in. And at first I thought I was really lucky because they were standing right next to each other. But as it turned out, it was hard for me to make it through where all the saddle and the stirrups were. So at one point, um, 
I was clucking and poking them and they just kind of looked at me like, hey, you're smaller than me and I'm hungry and ignored me. Uh, at one point, I turned around to try to push myself backwards. And at that moment, my mind or my consciousness, my soul popped out of my body and stood about six feet away watching it. Now, I didn't change or anything, but I was really shocked. I remember thinking, what? But I couldn't even think of words as I watched myself continue to try to wiggle in between those two horses. And all of a sudden, one of the horses on my left, me, the soul body, not me, the person in the horses, screeched and the six or seven horses around me bolted. At that time, I spun and my right arm went through the stirrup of the horse and because I was dragging on him when he was trying to run with the other horses, he first hit me with his head. He kind of head-butted me sideways, which caused me to go crashing into the corner of concrete and metal, the um, hay barn, and I dropped like a, a sack of rocks. Wow. I'm watching all this with the awareness. I didn't feel, I mean, I my body was screaming. I didn't feel a thing. I didn't feel any nervousness. I didn't feel any despair. I didn't feel any pain. But it was almost like dispassionately watching it. Like, wow, you know, like what's going on? And it just took a few seconds to be over. But I knew I was dead. And I knew it. I mean, there was never a doubt in my mind. Yet my first reaction was to start giggling. I remember thinking, this is it. This is what everyone's so afraid of. I'm still here and I'm still thinking. Mm. And I felt such peacefulness and love and freshness. It was kind of like if you could picture taking off a body girdle that's four sizes too small, how fresh you would feel. Oh, I would imagine. Yeah. Like, like you, you know, when you're walking around in a towel after a shower, you feel so fresh. And it was, I felt like little, it was almost like every cell had separated and this beautiful breeze was going through. And I felt such just peacefulness and completeness and that this is the way it should be, this feeling. And, you know, I'm a very curious person. So the first next thing I thought was, well, what, what do I look like? So I looked down at myself. And I was still in my blue jeans and my boots and, and everything. And it wasn't see-through or anything like that. But I did notice it was almost like this little tiny mist was rising off of me. And the mist was just a little tiny bit of blue. And this mist that was rising off of me. The other thing I noticed was how intensely accurate my vision was when we're staring at something we look at the center and then by the time we get out a few feet on either side into the edges of our peripheral vision it's gone and that that didn't happen it was as if everything within my peripheral vision was perfectly in focus and yet wasn't overwhelming like too much information the same thing with sound I heard every little bird i've heard every little scurry of a lizard you know the horses were chomping again i could hear their woofing breath as they kind of grabbed the 
the alfalfa. And um, so I just stood there marveling at everything. And then down by the bottom of the, the big uh, pen, the holding pen, I saw the cowboys, both rides were back, so they opened the gate. And I felt this really sweet nostalgia, like, oh, I know what they're doing. I've done that. You know, like, it was almost like going back to a merry-go-round and watching children ride on it and remembering how thrilling it was when I was little. You know, that kind of just happiness. And they came in and they started up, you know, got the guests in, closed the gate, started towards the unsaddling part and saw the boss's wife laying face down in manure and raced over. And um, I was just a few feet from them and they flipped me over and started trying to resuscitate me. And no matter how much I screamed, please don't, please don't, I'm fine, they kept trying. And two of the guests had gotten down and both they were both doing a CPR together. And one man um, that was doing the breath kept watching his watch. And then after whatever minutes, they said it was six or seven minutes, they stopped and they still couldn't get breath. And um, the cowboys later told me that my skin was pure gray and my lips were the color of my blue jeans. And um, one of the men sat back and said, go get Bob, she's gone. So at that point, it was interesting because I began to let go of being in Tucson, but Tucson just started to fade. I know a lot of people have talked about feeling like they were lifted up or above. I mean, I wasn't feeling like I was standing on the ground, but just like maybe a foot above. But it's almost as if this world started emerging. Tucson started fading and another world came in with, it was an oak forest. It was a very thick oak forest. And my impression was, Hmm, I'm just going to another level. Like I've studied energy and I know the magnetic field and the color spectrum and the sound spectrum. And, and I felt like I was being moved to a different part of those spectrums, you know, outside what we normally see, because I got the impression that it was just me closing my eyes and waking up and being in a different, on a different plane, but in the same area. And it was a beautiful oak forest. And all of the crisp alertness that I had downstairs is what I call earth. And upstairs is what I call heaven. Um, all that crispness was a bit gone. I felt like, you know, you, you wake up a little groggy because you had two glasses of wine the night before. You know? Yes. Just groggy. You know, I was kind of like trying to get my uh, sea legs, so to speak. And everything was so intense, intensified as far as the beauty and the peacefulness. All I could feel was this extraordinary level of selfless love. Um, I know that we've had speakers here in Tucson, and a few of them had talked about the unconditional love. And for me, I just use a different word because the time that I feel it on earth, if you've ever given someone a present and they're opening it up and they look at you and they, the look in their eyes, you know it was a perfect thing or like to give a gift like that to a child and look at the joy they feel when you know you hit the bullseye. We get this like rush through our bodies that just makes us feel so alive 
and, and loved because it's a selfless gift of giving someone something you know will bring them great joy. And um, it's that kind of feeling, you know, that, that selfless love. And the other thing I was amazed at was it was a very thick forest. Now, I live in a forest here in Tucson. There's not many of them, but for some reason I have a house there. And there's a great deal of shade and shadow. And the, I noticed that there was no shadows. It was as if I walked up and I was looking at the ferns and the trees and the bushes. And it was as if they were lit from within. Um, and the other thing I can say is this evening when the sun is setting, go out and, and put a tree between you and the sun. And when you see those the sunlight coming through the leaves, that's maybe 10% of what it is upstairs, but you get that feeling of how things are all lit from within. And I kept like marveling, like just touching things. Um, I walked over to, there was a little river behind me. So I walked over and there were rocks and there was a lovely splashing sound. And I saw some ferns dripping in and these spiky flowers and butterflies and there were birds flitting around and singing. And then I turned back, that was to my right, I turned back and I saw over on my left a little opening in the forest and there was a table that kind of looked like lapis lazuli, that blue lapis, and chairs around it. And I was watching the table and it was again as if things were still coming through, there was people standing around there, a group of people. So I walked over and everybody greeted me. And at that point, it was really the first time where I got a really strong sense of something familiar, like, wait a minute, I know these people, I know this place. And I sat down, um, there was uh, 11 other people and there were five women and six men, and there were, we sat around this big oval table. In the middle of the table were some wavy lines that kind of looked like when you're driving and you see those heat waves, because they were just wavy. I really couldn't see people on the other side of the table. I could see just really the people around me. And because they were so gro I was so groggy, it took me a while to really process. Uh, well, I don't know what a while is, but it, I right. wasn't as sharp as I was downstairs where yeah. everything was bing, bing, bing. I noticed the woman on my right, and I recognized her because when I was really, really little, I used to see what I called angels in my bedroom, in the garden, and and all around me. Every once in a while, not all the time, but every once in a while, it would almost be like something kind of kept me still, and then I would see uh, this woman who was next to me, and her name was Mina. It popped in my mind, and I wasn't sure if I was remembering it or if it was telepathic. And then I looked to my um, – oh, one more thing. Before that, I, when I was walking – before I saw them, me again, what do I look like? And I had this long dress on, and it was a deep, deep Prussian blue, and it was very – elaborately embroidered with little gold and I looked my hands looked like babies you know like I was maybe 20 years old it was just very young and I had big really large kind of like almost 
like nickel and quarter size freckles, just a few, but they were really light. And then I was like touching my, okay, I have short curly hair. Short hair? I like long hair, I was thinking. And so when I walked over the table, everyone was so harmoniously, beautifully dressed. It was, they looked like felted wool or they looked like silk or cottons, beautiful embroideries. Um, and everyone, again, looked very, very young. It looked like college kids, except for the, their eyes. There was so much soul and wisdom in the eyes. And I looked over on my right, there was a gentleman sitting, and he had long hair and a beard, but it was interesting because everyone was so harmoniously dressed but him. And his name was Raul. And um, he had this brilliant, bright, ultraviolet shirt on, and then he had these pants on that were this kind of, you know, kind of garish, orangey-brown. And I was thinking to myself, well, now, wait a minute. You've got all the colors of the universe to work with. Who dressed you? You know, I was like thinking, well, man, they must, you know, not even upstairs. I can't dress themselves. No, I'm kidding. You're funny. But, well, the funny part is this. Um, well, Rao is actually the in Ayurvedic, which I knew nothing about this until actually a couple months ago. Rao is a planet in Sanskrit, and Mina is Pisces in Sanskrit. And on that date I had the accident, Rao was going through Mina, which happens every 20 years. And the other thing, Rao's color is ultraviolet, and his stone is hessenite garnet, which is orangey-brown garnet. So oh, that weird. It finally made sense to me after 26 years. I figured, oh, okay, that makes sense. But I sat down, and Mina and Rao were the only ones that talked to me, and they explained that um, I had gone down on a mission with my soul group, and this was the remnant that had been, stayed behind. There was 10 that were stayed behind originally, and 20 went down. And I had contracted to come up when I was 21 with another person in the soul group, we were just going to come down, shift consciousness, and bring in a level of forgiveness and begin to open the door to a, a huge shift of consciousness. And um, she explained to me that between the years of uh, 45 and 65, you know, with a few years on either side, the majority of very, very, very old souls had come down after the two world wars to help shift awareness and and bring up consciousness and i and another soul group person were supposed to pop back up at, at 21 but she said at the time right before i was supposed to go i turned and jumped my contract she said that's not a problem you were a volunteer and they don't mind any amount of help on earth but now you have a choice. You didn't contract to have two children. You have two children. You can stay up here. The you know you do not have to go back to Earth. However, think of how it will impact the children. They will have you know no problems either way. But you have a decision to make. You can go down to Earth or you can stay up here. You have to think about this. And so Rao and I walked around a little. And I went to meditate in this cave um, behind a waterfall. He brought me to a place. He said, this is a place that you like to go for stillness. And when I went in, um, there was a very 
potent light being there. And as soon as I walked in, I recognized it to be Jesus. Now, the interesting thing is this came accident came at a time in my life when I was basically agnostic, bordering on atheist. I had no interest in spirituality. I was a good person. I was a hard worker. I was a good mother. I was a good friend. But I just had no part. I was very science-minded, you know. I was not quite a materialist or atheist, but I was definitely not at all interested in any spirituality. Um, I had left that behind due to a tragedy in during college, and I just gave up on all that spiritual stuff and just went into work. And so me seeing someone like Jesus really did surprise me because I wasn't, you know, a fan. I wasn't hating, but I just had no, I mean, I believe Jesus, I believed at that time Jesus existed, etc. But it was really interesting because he had such a strong aura and such a loving aura. And we talked about forgiveness. And he actually had me lay down on this table that was like white. It was beautiful white marble. In fact, the whole inside of the cave was polished. It looked like it had been hand carved and, and polished and little like, um, symbols and ledges were put around there, but it was, it was actually quite huge. It was probably like, you know, 40 feet by 40 feet. And, um, he took a little, bowl with white marble and he had I could smell rose and sandalwood and he put them on all my chakras and he said you've done a lot of work we want you to relax I'm going to clear some stuff off of you um, and so he put them on all my chakras and then he also put it on my ankles and on my wrists and um, we talked a little about forgiveness and self-forgiveness and um, how difficult it is to accomplish what you feel a goal is when you're working part of a team. You have to be patient, you know, and understand that the goal is emerging and to be patient. And then um, I was peeking at him, so he put another big blop on my forehead and my third eye, and we were laughing, and he just told me to rest, and I, I think I napped because I do remember closing my eyes, and then when I opened them, uh, he was gone. So I climbed down and Raul had pointed me out to the village saying, go over there when you're done. So I walked over and I walked into this big, huge room, uh, a building. You could put a, a, an indoor football dome inside the middle of it. It was that large. And the gate, the doors were wide open and I walked in and there were all the walls were covered with these tiny little uh, like a dentist, old dentist office, those little drawers. Yeah. And so I walked over and I pulled open a couple of the drawers and I was looking at different scrolls and different books. And again, was that memory like, oh, I could read this. I could, it looked familiar, but I couldn't quite grasp what it was. And I put them back and I walked along again. And then I saw there were these transepts on either side that were mimicking the room had again huge all this library and i got about halfway through and there was this little pedestal that looked like it was made out of bakelite which is kind of like a white glossy material like the old telephones were made out of bakelite but this was white 
And um, another being, a big, really bright being came up and she was probably, if I'm five foot six, she was maybe nine feet tall. Oh my, okay. And she had this beautiful robe on. It was indigo on the top that kind of went into white, like brilliant white at the, at the hem. And she introduced herself, but I didn't catch her name because it was like a melody. And this was very telepathic. And I was, I was listening to her and she said, I only come when I'm called. Will you have a question? And I, I said, I'm sorry. I don't understand your name. And she laughed which sounds like this beautiful laugh, you know, and kind of sounded like little glass chimes. And she then said, on, uh, on earth, they call me Saraswati. And so she said, what information? And what had happened was right before my accident, I felt like I had really like just something had turned off my hope. And, um, what, what had happened was I had come across an article that was written in honor of some anniversary or maybe the lady was trying to go for an appeal or, you know, um, get out of prison. But the woman had these three little gorgeous baby girls. And I saw this picture of these three little children. My children were three years old and one years old. And you have all that mommy juice, you know, and you're looking at this picture. Oh, sweet little babies. Mm-hmm. And then I read the story of this woman who took her children one by one and shot them because her girlfriends were going out and she couldn't. She was a height, like 18 or 19 and she had three children already. She had a child every year for three years um, and all with different fathers. And she tried to make it like someone had come in. And it, it knocked me for a loop that a, a mother could have a visceral connection to these babies and think of so little of them. And I, I just felt like, you know, I would have taken those children. A hundred thousand people would have taken those children. You could have taken them and just given them up for adoption. And I just felt very frustrated when I read that. And I could feel myself just shut down. And then she explained it to me by saying, you know, again, you have to keep your eye on the big picture. And you don't know, you know, what their karma is to understand that. But at the end of the conversation, it was very, it was very hopeful. You know, she kept showing me ways that to take a breath and keep your eye in the bigger picture. And she also was kind of um, bolstering me with just letting me get a feeling of, you know, you've caught your breath. Now you can understand that that is sometimes what happens in life. Because I was, I was still going back to how could God let this happen? And her answer was basically God didn't let it happen. Humans let it happen. So you can't blame spirit for this. This is, um, showing that there's a lot of things that still need to be fixed. Sure. Just to be patient and recognize that not one person's going to change it all. It's going to be a group effort. And it reminded me of the random acts of kindness. Remember when that first started coming out? Yes. And she was very, very adamant that, like, stopping to let someone in line. If you've got 50 things and they have one, letting them jump ahead of you. Or when we're going down from three lanes to one lane, the more polite people are about letting people in, the quicker you get through rather than the people that race ahead and try to shoulder their way in. Just being polite. 
whether they say thank you or not was irrelevant. So she kind of reminded me that. And then she also, you know, um, just gave me like the light around her was so intense. And she also told me this was one of my favorite places to hang out because this was the hall of records. And we call it the Akashic records, but upstairs they called it the hall of records where everything was new or cutting edge was up there. And then, Oh, no wonder I like encyclopedias so much online. And I, I spend so much time researching new scientific breakthroughs, you know, whether it's physics or magnetic field or biology or health. I'm always reading. Um, I like to keep abreast of what's cutting edge. And so then I finally went out and I, Mina was waiting for me. So we went over to a smaller building. And she said, now we need to decide. And we had a really long talk. And the interesting thing was, it was the first time I began to feel tired. When we were walking over, I could feel tired, which I had never felt before. In fact, I'd never felt any negative emotion. I didn't feel fear. And and it's interesting how we have it so hardwired in our psyche with that reptilian or what they call the animal brain that fight or flight reflex how totally you know it's part of our our dynamics as a human yes and um it's zero up there all you have is all the high happy lovey parts of you and all of the fear or conquering or competition or all the negativity envy you know greed Oh, they didn't even, there was not, not, not even a quirk of that in me. So that was like, again, that made, was so joyful. Sure. So we sat down and we talked about a few things. Again, they showed me in that little wavy line, like when I first got up, they showed me the accident. So I could understand why the horses panicked if they had actually let out the herd boss, Montana was his name. And to be the herd boss of a hundred horses, you got to be really cranky and mean and tough. And when they come down, all they have to do is put their ears back. And he nipped one of the horses, and that was the horse that screeched. And they all scatter like pigeons on a square, you know, just bolt. And I just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then um, we talked about my decision, whether I would, what do I do up here? And what will I do back there? And the thing that she said I would do up there was really, really fascinating to me because it made a lot of sense um, from some of the people, so many of the people I meet as a therapist. What she explained to me was this, that throughout the evolution of human as a body, mind, spirit being, There have been very, very, very old souls which will incarnate to shift energy and to be teachers. In other words, you could be going talking to the Safeway guy who's bagging your groceries, who's never going to stop doing that for his entire career. And he could be an extremely old soul who's having a nice, pleasant life, but he's just here to ground the energy, whereas other people are teachers. But the thing that's different is those old souls were put into families that supported that. Like the Dalai Lama, when he was born, the two monks found him from astrology predictions. And he saw at the age of seven, these two monks walking up and he ran home and said to his mother, I have to go. You know, he was like six or seven. And 
his mother supported that. And then he went into a monastery. Well, all he did was learn and train in the spiritual, you know, um, to raise spiritual consciousness. So around, Nina said that around the 1860s, that the energy had shifted enough on earth to where they started a new program, which was a volunteer program. So if you could picture like a bunch of old souls being around convents and ashrams and synagogues and temples and, and things like that, different mosques, you know, different places of learned people that were spiritually learned, the children would be brought in or they would be brought into families that honored that gift of the child. But what they did was they, and they, she showed me kind of a little movie of me doing it where I had a little tiny light about as big as a half a grain of rice. And I was looking over a map where you could see the light being clusters. And I was putting it right in the middle as far away from any light that I, as I could. So that this older soul had to come in and they were talking about, they said, it's like bringing light into a shade. We're bringing light into the shade. Not like the shadow side, like Jung talked about, or dark. It was just a place where there was not light. Just, you know, um, people that hadn't been exposed to it yet. But they were totally alone. And at that point, um, they had to go inside and find that light within. So they may have been born into aggressive, hateful families. They may have been born into fear-based, um, fundamentalist-type families, um, but they were born into families that did not recognize their their soul level and taught them against it. So I call them Houdini kids because Houdini used to be blindfolded, tied up, put into a bag, and thrown into the ocean. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He had to get himself out. So these beings, these light beings, had to go inside and find that light within them and say, no, this is not right. So for all the children that were born and felt like they landed in the wrong family, that they, and not in a superiority way, just like there's no one here for me to talk to about what I'm thinking or feeling. And people tend to squash that out of people. You know, they can terrify you. Um, I remember asking a priest one time that used to come to our house for dinner about the angels I saw. And he said, um, you know, that they're devils because he just thought I was an over-imaginative child. Of course. And so he took his water and he blessed it and he sprinkled it on me. He said, now, if you're possessed by the devil, your skin will sizzle. And I was terrified. Of, of course. course. But this. This had happened, I think he just thought I was an over-imaginative child and he wanted to, you know, put the fear of God into me or whatever. Yeah, he was an ice priest. Oh, it worked because, and it happened like a week after I had psychically seen a car accident before it happened and it happened and then I thought I caused it. So I was just very confused, but I shut down. I just shut off anything that had to do with spirit and I was about seven or eight. When that happened, so people were born into some of them were very loving families, but they just didn't couldn't teach the PhD level of spiritual. Mm -hmm. Might have been in sixth grade in their evolutionary levels. So 
they had to find their own light within. Um, I've had so many people in lectures when I'm doing this lecture come up to me and say, oh, my gosh, I always thought I would change changeling. You know, I, I was looking. And then you'll find, you know, as soon as you find out, you know, no, I'm okay. like You're okay like you, but I'm okay like me. That also brings across the idea that there's many different paths to the top of the mountain, as Buddha said. Yeah, so, which is a good thing. Yeah. I and then, I felt very much alone with my thoughts and stuff like that. So, when, Yeah, but now you've got your tribe around you, don't you? Hell yeah. See? Yeah. There you go. Well, shouldn't say hell, but yes. <laughs> are, are you going to tell me, I have the sneaky suspicion that when you return back to your body, it was only minutes that you were out. I don't want to finish up your... Um, your time goes by very quickly. Um, okay, you're right. Yeah. Um, I would say that they said I was gone. We don't know exactly. I left at 10 to 3. I looked at the clock. When they came in, it was 7 after 3. I don't know exactly when I died. It could have been wow. a minute before 3. But they're saying probably the guesstimate was 10 to 12 minutes minimum, probably 12 to 15 maximum. That's a so, long time, Leslie. Well, you know, the weird part is, is that if I show my CAT scans to um, neurologists like Evan and other neurologists, they all look at me and they go, you should be dead, you should be a vegetable. And it was just, I had, it seemed to have a little window of time in which I could come down and go back because meeting people and meeting people who have had head injuries, the people that I've met since my injury, um, it, and I was in the hospital like almost three months. I mean, it was massive head injury um and you know i had to go through all that um coming back and getting back in my life and figuring out how to organize myself because i left an agnostic and came back going okay i gotta go back to the light i can't ignore it anymore you know do you remember making the choice that you wanted to come back and be with your kids and yes yes it, we talked about it both ways and the funny part was once i said you know, I looked at my children, they showed me my children, they showed me the things I would do down here, I'd go back into my psychology background, which is what I did. But, you know, when I finally said yes, then they started to stop me and they go, now wait a minute, it's going to be really, really difficult. You're going to have a few years in which you are going to have to be very isolated, you know, you're going to uh, have to integrate this. And I'm thinking, few years? What's a few years? I mean, you're up in infinity. What's a couple of years, you know? Right. And then I made the decision. And then finally, I came and I went into a room in which I was seated. And then I felt like I was being compressed, like I was being squished into a sausage casing. And Raul was with me. And I gasped. And he stopped the process. And he said, remember, you, you don't have to go back. You can stay here. And I looked at him, and then I thought of my children again, and I thought, no, uh, and, and what I could do to help down here with bringing hope, which was my next mission. And I said, no, I can do that. I'll go back. And that's when he said to me, remember, every breath is precious. And then I just went clunk and hit the ground. Wow. What I find interesting, too, Leslie, is that your soul stepped out of your body before the accident happened is what you made it sound like which is that yes. right yes but you know what's interesting is i used to work in a nursing home 
when I first got out of college, I had a psych degree in majoring in gerontology, and there were no hospices there. And people, there were so many people when we would call them and say, your mother or father's dying, they would say, call me when it's over. And my motto was, no one dies alone on my watch. So I would go in and sit with them. And I saw that time and time and time again, where the soul would leave, even though the people were talking, it was almost like I could sense it standing there joyful and, and very happy as the body was dying. Um, and sometimes it would be two to three minutes. One lady, uh, was about eight or nine minutes, uh, before I could sense that. And even my father died in my arms and my brother's arms. He had fallen and we were holding him and I saw his soul jump out and I said, he's dying. Don't pick him up. And Tommy looked at me and said, he's still talking. I said, no, he's over there. And then like another minute later, my dad passed. So I think that. The soul, I'm not going to say every time, but I'm, I'm wondering how often that happens where the person pops out before the accident. Yeah, I like the sound of that only after witnessing how my dad died of cancer. And someone mm-hmm. had said to me, it's, you know, because I, I witnessed incredible suffering and somebody just said, you know, it's possible his soul left the body even though he, he seems to be, you know, moving in pain and, and all that stuff. And I thought, I, I, I never heard that. And I thought, boy, I'm going to hang on to that, that well, hopefully that was the case. That- I was screaming. I was screaming my body. I shouldn't say I, because I was watching it. Right. I was not in my body. And Leslie was screaming bloody murder and getting trampled and smashed and in, in fighting, you know, so... It wasn't like I, it was like I was doped up out there. I watched me be brutally run over mm. and die. But like I said, it was dispassionate. I couldn't witness something like that in this incarnate and, and have such objectivity. Right. It wasn't like, oh, well, it doesn't count. There was no, it was like understanding. It's like you get this immortal soul understanding of this bigger picture and it's just part of letting go. You know, um, the other thing that I just remembered, which I thought was odd, was I was asked when we were talking about the second time we sat down, Mina and Raul had asked me, do you want to remember this? Or do you want to not remember this? Um, oh. He said that with the trajectory that I was going, the life I was going to go into, they advised me to do it, but they also gave me the choice of remembering or not. And I, we talked about it and I chose to do it. So I'm wondering how many people that maybe don't remember were given that choice. That's Again, interesting. I, yeah. yeah. There's lots of people, uh, even my sister met someone who died on an operating table but didn't have any experience of seeing the light or seeing relatives or whatever and maybe maybe it's possible that we do get a choice to remember or not remember huh very interesting now how about you being psychic did you find that after you healed that that i mean if you went into this being a borderline atheist even though you had uh, these things happen as a kid that, you know, you had it in there, something must have been magnified 
that you decided to go into this as a career or make it part of your career? Well, the thing is, um, the first time I shut off my intuition or my psychic parts, which you can shut off, was when I had that priest and that accident when I was seven or eight. The second time was when I was supposed to die when I was 21. I was, I was supposed to be with my fiance. We were getting married in August. And um, it was like a picture-perfect love-at-first-sight love. And I was supposed to be with him in Albuquerque. And at the very, about 10 days before he died, I got very restless and I wanted to go back to Chicago and earn as much money as I could for school. And he kept saying to me that he had premonitions that he was going to die and begged me to stay. And he wasn't, you know, full of game. And here I am working in psychology and college, but off campus. I had a Wiccan high priestess, I had two medicine people, and a West African shaman who I was doing apprenticeships with. Wow. Opening up, and I was supposedly, I mean, I say that, but because I didn't feel like it, I was very psychic, and I was working with tarot and numerology and, you know, herbs and, and ceremony and energy and, and all this stuff. And I didn't feel anything like that in Sean's aura. And I kept teasing him and saying I was going to rub his words, his nose in his words when I got back at the end of August. In fact, he called me two days before he died and begged me to come back. And it was midnight because I was working two jobs and that's the only time he could get me and he wouldn't hang up and I hung up. And then the, two days later he dies, you know, and it was like I just went on such a tailspin. But then when I was upstairs, that made sense because he and I had come down from the same soul group to help facilitate. We had contracted to leave when we, when I was 21 and I, and I didn't go. I, at the last second decided to jump my contract and stay on earth. And so all those things kind of made sense to me, but when he died, it devastated me. And I remember um, I kind of took it out on one of my teachers when I came back because I went on a like a five hours we talked and I, I kept saying to her, how could I not see this? How could you not see this? How could you know, knew him? You know, how could nobody see this? He knew it. And she tried to explain it to me and I stayed with her another month working with her. But at the end of the day, I just walked away from it and said, it's a bunch of, you know, hooey. It's a bunch of, hush. it's a lie. I was faking it or I was not faking it, but I was lying to myself. You know, the power of suggestion. Oh, yeah. I went back into science at that point, and that was when I was um, 21. And then when I was 36 is when I got run over, and I went back into spirit at that point. Spent a lot of time in India trying to integrate human and spirit, you know, in my brain. And um, just did a lot of soul searching and meditation. Wow. And then at what point... Uh, Time is going by super fast, so I we're gonna might have to. I don't want to say speed through the rest of this, um, but I also want to be mindful not to have an hour and a half interview, um, unless it has to be. We we go with the flow here. But how, how did you end up starting to take clients, and what kind of work do you do with clients? Because I know you've been involved with neuro linguistic programming, hypnosis, that whole realm. And can you talk a little bit about? how you counsel people well the funny part was right after i came back and i finally got back to work 
and I started walking around the ranch and being Mrs. Tangerine Ranch again. Um, our veterinarian left. We had a veterinarian for many years, and this new girl starts, and guess what? She's mystical, you know, and a veterinarian. And then I'm walking down to the wrangling department one day, and there was a young woman standing there with a frame she had made out of swallow ribs that one of the cowgirls had ordered, but she had moved off to Wyoming by the time she got it done. So we started chatting, and I looked at her, and she and I said, you want to go riding? Do you know how to ride horses? Yeah, you know, she's a rancher. So we started going riding. She did tarot. She did all this. She's very mystical. And she and I started a very deep friendship, which is still today. And I went, I just went back into my spiritual part and I went back into the NLP and started getting back into my psychology part. And I love the archetypal imagery that of the tarot, like Jung talked about and Joseph Campbell, and that's how I use it. It's more like taking guides on an inner journey because one of the things that I found out very easily was we have many levels to our conscious, subconscious, and subliminal. And just like dogs on a dog sled, they all have to be pulling in the same direction. And a lot of people that are stuck, it's like a couple dogs are pulling this way and a couple dogs are pulling that way. And I'm usually really good at tuning into their field, picking things up, and then giving them whatever homework is needed to, here's the tool. You can't do the bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. I mean, I know that there's... (laughs) Damn. (laughs) I want the magic wand. No, I understand. You know what? There's a lot of very, very amazing people in India that do these um, energy transfers that blow your mind, but you still have to do the 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 work you know you still have to do the the things in fact i'm putting my workshop into a workbook and the first thing i and it's a lot of journaling because journaling if you want to do something in half time journal it because your brain's connected to your skin and when you write something down you learn it twice as fast as when you just think about it or just talk about it i didn't know that oh yeah when i'm working as a psychologist I give everybody a recording and I tell them to take notes. I mean, you know, re- listen to it again because in when they're out the other is actually true about your brain uh-huh. and take notes and you listen to it again. And then maybe two weeks later, you listen to it again and you go through the course like and you learn so much quicker. You download it to where it's a permanent thing rather than just a possibility. It becomes more of a probability. Yeah. Your brain's connected to your skin. They did a study when, well, never mind. I could go on. You could. But yeah. I could go, we could, we could go for a while. Can you've got me now left on the dogs and the dog sled. Um, and are there common things? Cause I always like to leave listeners with some powerful tools. Are there some common things that we have out of alignment that you give as homework? I mean, are there some, um, well, I can tell you one of the things mm-hmm. that really, really centered me quickly. Okay. Because um, I had met a monk from Mount Shasta, and he and I, um, he taught me the very simple thing. It's a very simple thing. It's just being mindful. In other words, if I'm ironing and I have the television on and I'm talking to my sister on the phone, <laughs> brain we don't multitask i know people think you can do eight things at once you don't what your brain is doing is it's going jump 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 that puts an inordinate amount of stress in us 
So now when I, and this is the, one of the first things I did when I came back from India, is I just started doing one thing at a time. I mean, I still multitask other times. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I struggle like the best of them. But there are times during the day for at least an hour a day where I do one thing only. And that's all I do. And so if I'm ironing, I can have gentle, soft, without words music. Because with words, music affects your brain different than just uh, instrumentals. Okay. And so I'll have instrumentals on as I'm ironing or as I'm doing the dishes. Or I have no music. You know, you can do it also with nothing on. Just do it. Right. It's focusing on one thing at a time and not daydreaming. I'm not ironing, daydreaming about my next lecture, my next workshop, the three people, I focus on what I'm doing and I just keep my mind. I can't sit and meditate. I'm just not one of those people that can sit and zone out. You know, I learned that in India, but there's movement meditations. And that's just when they say mindfulness, all they're saying is focus on one thing. A lot of people don't understand what that means. And, and that really got me very, very centered and grounded very quickly of keeping that peacefulness within me at all times. Because when I was remembering upstairs, which I do quite a bunch, I'm right back in that zone of that self-love. But then I'd have to get up and take care of my children and go take out a ride or do whatever I had to do. And I'd be human again. And it was almost like my spiritual part was like a satellite around me. So I worked to integrate them to where I'm, I'm human and spiritual because it's almost like you're elevating humanity. You're elevating the human inside. Mm, that's great. Um, your book's coming out soon. Yes. It's not out yet. And for no. listeners, keep an eye on We Don't Die Radio episode 110. As soon as it's out, I will have a link to it. Um, but what, what kind of things are in your book? Well, um, I go over in a lot of detail about the whole journey. I go um, into a lot more detail on how I integrated and I give a couple, I give um, two very strong um, exercises in the book. I, I write about when I first channeled these exercises in that really helped me not take things personally, number one, and number two, not get caught up in the roles we play as humans because I was identifying too much with the roles I was playing mm -hmm. and I was human. And those are going to be in the book so that everybody that reads it can take that home with them and practice it and begin to be in touch with. Everybody has an immortal soul. Every one of us does. It's just we're not aware of it. And ways of stilling the mind, you're, it's, you're, it comes up. And it's something, I mean, I had to go get run over by a herd of horses to finally get centered. And you don't have to do that. You know, you can just do it yourself the easy way. Some people are more stubborn than others, I think. Wow. I, I read somewhere on your website on one of your courses, re rewrite your life contracts. Yeah. Can, can we actually choose how it's going to go from this point forward? Absolutely. I am absolutely not fatalistic. I mean, I'm a psychic. I'm very spiritual. I'm probably the least superstitious person you've ever met, except the Chicago Cubs. Uh, <laughs> I, am, I, I really believe, I know we have free will. And the thing that I, the, the paradigm I believe in is reincarnation. And that was very evidenced upstairs. I mean, I, I shouldn't say that. I think of it now. I didn't think of it before. I didn't care about it before. I was just, we're here, we're died, that's it. 
Now, what I was showing was more a reincarnation model, which means that the soul sometimes will choose to take one lesson and break it into three or four lifetimes, because for them, that's like breaking high school into four years versus trying to do it all in a year and a half. Hmm. That's why when we see souls, we don't understand what they have chosen as their life contract. And if they fail, if they do chose to go from first to second grade and they blow it, they go back down to pre-K and then they relearn. The interesting thing is learning upstairs is as joyous and excited. People up there, the light beings up there are so excited to learn, almost like we have vacation time down here. We love our leisure time. They love their learning time. So it appeared to me as if we do a lot of going over what we did, how can we educate ourselves, what can I learn, what can I practice. Then we come down here to take our tests, and then we go back upstairs again to process. The other thing is the most hopeful thing I noticed was that everything is growing. I mean, to me, the divine source, which I ran into upstairs, which is indescribable, uh -huh. the love and that intense adoration that I felt coming from the divine is growing. As we evolve, it evolves. It's like God is not static. Now, I was raised Roman Catholic, and they have this very, you know, specific way of looking at God being perfect. But in my dictionary, perfect means that's the end of the road. You don't have to do anything anymore. Uh -huh. I didn't get that sense. I got that sense of, from the divine that it's evolving and growing as we are. Everything is growing, and it's not negative. It's growing in a good way. Yeah, gotcha. Um, Leslie, could you just spend a couple minutes talking about your workshop on relationships. I'm a single gal myself. I know I'm not the only single person listening, and I love how you advertise it on your website. Are you tired of dead-end relationships? Whether they are a partner, family member, or at work, the pain and frustration of dead-end relationships take its toll, takes a toll. And I, I know myself like many other people, can attract the same kind of individual. And what is it that you offer? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming these are live workshops or is it something online? Well, I'm going to turn it into an e-course. Yay. Yeah. Good, 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 good. Yeah, I want to put it on an e-course because someone thought of it and told me. And I thought, oh. Yeah, you so just got to a lot more all, people. No, but I'm not technical, so I'll find I have You'll someone. Find a way. Yeah, someone's already come forward who's going to put it as an, into an ink course. Anyway. But I'll be patient. But um, oh, what, what, no, role, I, yeah, I what role do other people play and what can we do to oh, – gosh, I mean, this, this is a whole other interview, so I don't want to get too deep into it. But what, and any words on relationships before we the close? Thing, the most important thing to realize is this. When you meet someone, whether it's a family member – or an in-law, or a romantic, or friend, or business. You must accept people as they are and stop trying to fix them. The biggest thing that I work with is the healers on the planet that always wind up being the teacher in the classroom because they're not including themselves in their decisions. And there's a selfless love that makes us feel that true love conquers all because that's what we were taught when we were little, and yeah. it doesn't. 
And one of the biggest things, and the reason this whole thing started with my workshops, was I had a woman, I was working as a therapist, and I had a client, and she was going through a divorce, her second one, and she looked at me, and she was half angry, half weepy, and said, when am I going to be happily married? Mm -hmm. As if it's carved in stone, and I'm going to pull a card and tell her, oh, on this date, you know? And I looked at her, and I said, when you're already happy inside, and first of all, she had this fire flash through her eyes, like I thought she might, you know, get up and leave. But she all, but also she popped like a balloon. She just went, oh, because she was not a happy person, and she was looking to find her happiness outside of herself. My workshop is designed to first of all kind of go through our subliminal programming, which means we're ninety percent unaware of it. Rewrite your view of relationship and the roles that you play, which is actually basically in a nutshell, falling in love with yourself. Confidence is humble. Self-love is humble. Nobody that has true love is ever arrogant or bossy or conceited. Self-love is humble. And so um, I teach people to, first of all, Include yourself in your decisions and also understand one critical thing. The world is a one-room schoolroom. Every person that you know is in a different grade. And I, in my workshop, I talk about going from pre-K to PhD. You can have someone who is intellectually a PhD, but emotionally, or even a business PhD, but emotionally they're still in third grade or kindergarten. Hmm. And the is we have to be not making snap judgments to think we know them. We have to observe how they walk their talk and wade into relationships rather than jump in. And the second thing is remembering and thinking a good place to start is think of your entire birth family, every cousin, everyone you knew, and just kind of think about who is my peer? Who has the same level of personal and professional integrity that I have, who has the same level of, of, you know, maturity, responsibility, attitude. There's a lot of Eeyores out there with clouds over their head. Who's looking at the glass half full? And then you begin to look at, okay, then you, those are the PhDs. And then you say, okay, here's a few that are still dysfunctional, melodramatic. That's maybe more high school. And here's some that are just total selfish little, narcissistic, you know, gobblers. Those are young souls. I can't go into first grade and be angry because I can't talk physics with a first grader. I have to accept them as they are. And actually, the funny part I always say in the workshop is, listen, when you open the box, if it says assembly required, put it back on the shelf. You do not want (laughs) at all, you do not want to have to fix them. I'm a psychologist. It's against the law for me to date my patients. And that's something I pound into people's head. Don't ever date a patient again. And don't say to them, well, it would be great if they fix this. No, you take them as they are or you walk away. Wow. Leslie, thank you. You're welcome. I want to go on and on and on. I want your book to be done. I want you to take your workshop right now from (laughs) Massachusetts. I think this is going to be the beginning of a good friendship. I think so too. Yeah, you're up to a lot of good and I and I, I'm left with wanting to know more. But it is the end of the hour. 
And so we are going to conclude. Do you have any closing words? Just if you you feel guided to leave uh, myself and listeners with just one positive, something to get the dogs on track or something. It's really recognizing one of the things that always helps me is when I look at the bigger picture and watching the news and seeing the horrific things that happen, I always go back to the day I was born and I look at the shifts of consciousness that have happened since my birth. And there's many. And there's another, there's certain different web pages online that have optimistic news. And they're business people. They're not like, but they show all the positive things. Look at the whole picture. Don't despair over the small percentage of negativity. That's why one of the things I do is I always do a world consciousness, you know, what's going on all over. Mm. Because the good guys don't get the headlines. No, I always thought there should be GNN, the Good News Network, with all the people doing good deeds in the world. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And um, thank you for being our guest. And to our listener that's taken the time to be with us this past hour, you have been listening to We Don't Die Radio. Our guest was the fabulous Leslie Lupo. Her website is lightthepath.com. And of course, you can always go to we don't die radio.com. This was episode 110. And please feel free to join the Insiders Club too, because there's some secret special gifts, including reading my book for free and some other good things. So we'll definitely keep in touch with Leslie Lupok and uh, I'll keep you posted when her book is available because that's something I want to find out more. So in closing, my name is Sandra Champlain. I've been your host on We Don't Die Radio. And like I often say that I do believe that life is an education for the soul and that your life here on earth is important. I love how Leslie said, be patient with others. Keep your eye on the bigger picture. Um, I love upstairs, be in heaven, downstairs where we are right now. And again, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. And we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.